The Bible says in Matthew 3.16 that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Say identity. Identity. There you have it right there from the Father to the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Verse number 4. Excuse me, chapter number 4, verse 1. Then, immediately after this, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. How many of you have heard a message on this passage of Scripture? I'm just curious. Would you raise your hand? It's about... 75% of the room. This is before Jesus ever opens a blind eye, ever preaches a sermon, ever raises the dead, ever does a miracle in nature like walking on the water, cursing a fig tree, multiplying bread and fish. This is before he ever does anything. This is the passage of Scripture where Jesus Christ is 30 years old. He has been on planet Earth as the Son of Man and the Son of God for 30 years. With the reality being this, nobody looking at him would ever think he was the Son of God at this point. And the reason why is it's been 30 years of waiting on his assignment. 30 years of obey, obeying the Father and doing what the Father was doing and saying what the Father was saying, but had up to this point no public ministry whatsoever. And before any of that begins to proceed from his life, there is this amazing event at his baptism that launches Jesus into his public ministry. And so what I want to talk to you tonight is about how Satan goes after the Son of God and how Satan goes after you. To intercept or interrupt your confidence and your standing in the realm of your identity in Christ and your assignment from the Father. And if you're in Jesus, you have both of those things. No matter what degree of awareness you have on those, you have them both. You are in possession of an identity in Christ and an assignment from the Father. And since the enemy knows that once you come into your inheritance, into Jesus... 
Once you are saved, once you are born again, he knows he has lost that battle. And so what he recognizes is that every Christian is a potential source of glory for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Satan wants to do everything he can to suffocate that potential for you glorifying God. He wants to strip it off your life. So he's fighting you day in and day out. Some of you are aware of that fight. Others of you are not aware of that fight, and the reason why is because he has been successful. Because if you're not aware of his attack on your identity and your assignment, it is because you have succumbed at some level. But there's very good news. The reason why I'm preaching this tonight is to raise the kingdom awareness. I got down on my face right before I came up here during that last worship song, and I said, God, let them know tonight that you are uncovering this, not to condemn them or frighten them, but to call them into a renewal of their identity and their assignment in Christ. And so let's look at it very briefly. I want to go over the two verses in chapter number three, because I want you to see this here. First of all, we see that Jesus's kingdom identity is assigned. Even Jesus had a kingdom identity that the father assigned to him. And again, I read the verses. When he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God like a dove coming to rest upon him. And behold, and here's the identity, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I know you've heard that for probably multiple times. But this is a watershed moment in the life of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's been living as the Son of Man. He's been living unto obedience with the Father. Don't forget some strange verses describe Jesus as he was growing up. We don't have a whole lot of narrative about what he did when he was growing up. But the Bible says that he grew in wisdom. I want you to chew on that for a minute. God the Son grew in wisdom. It says he grew in favor with God and man. And then it also tells us a little later on in Hebrews that he, I think it's Hebrews, he learned obedience through the things he endured. So what you have is this reality. Jesus lived in complete dependence upon the Father as the Son of Man. That means he submitted himself, Jesus Christ submitted himself to the earthly process that all humans have to go through. Intellectually, he went through the process of gaining and growing wisdom, though as the son of God, we understand he was omniscient. Now there's a paradox there. Don't try to figure it out. Just go ahead and accept it. Not everything in scripture is given to you so you can try to Rubik's cube your way out of it. Some things you just have to accept. And so he grew in wisdom, he grew in favor, and here we have him at age 30. I mean, think about this with me. He's the son of God. He came to be the king of the cosmos. He came to establish his throne in Israel. He came to redeem and set free and to remove the religious bondage off of an enslaved generation that was dominated by Pharisaical Judaism. Jesus came to do all of that. But at age 5, he couldn't do it. At age 10, he couldn't do it. At his bar mitzvah at age 13, the father says, no, not yet. Though at age 12, we see a snapshot of him in the temple. And he is educating the doctors of the Jewish law in the temple. It's awesome when you wrote the book, you can teach the book. And so he is teaching them the Torah. He's teaching them, and they're astounded at his 12-year-old wisdom that's pouring out of him. But it still wasn't time for his assignment. At age 18, he's already well into his earthly father's business, that being a carpenter. 
and he is working as a carpenter. Still no ministry. Age 25, no ministry. It's not the father's time. Age 28, still not time. But at age 30, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming over the hillside and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he gets the confession from man, and then Jesus submits to baptism as John pulls him up out of the water. God the Spirit in the form of a dove lands upon Jesus, and then God the Father speaks from heaven the word of his identity. He says to all, this is my beloved son, and I'm very pleased with him. See, my friends, there is the need for this. Because everything Jesus is about to endure, Satan comes hard at him concerning who he is and who the Father is. So right before the testing comes a moment of deep, undeniable affirmation from the Father. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, receives his identity from the Father. Now let me make a couple of observational statements here. Most of us have been wired via our churches that we were reared in or are being reared in, through much of Christian writing, teaching, preaching, songs that we sing, most of us have been wired to ask first, what is my purpose? That's the first question most of us want to know when we come to Jesus Christ, when we are saved or as we're growing, we want to know why am I here, what is my purpose, what would you have me to do? That is in the nature of most of us, and unfortunately, churches and ministries and seminaries and schools, they kind of craft people to do long before the people know who they are to be. And the danger is that we start activity in the absence of identity. And so we're moving and we're doing and we are often trying to find our identity in our activity. So if I'm doing good, I have a healthy identity. But if I'm doing poorly, I have a poor identity. And so what the father did, did is he says to Jesus in an undeniable supernatural fashion, it's a rare moment where you've got the Trinitarian reality right there in a couple of verses. You've got Jesus the Son being baptized, God the Spirit descending upon Jesus, and God the Father speaking identity to Jesus. He never could have forgotten that moment. I, I don't know where any of us are on this. I know where I am. I can tell you this, it might help you to hear my confession. I think I've actually heard Pastor Dustin say this too, that when, when we succeeded early in ministry, a lot of our identity got threaded and woven together with what we were doing. Activity was way too intertwined with identity. And one of, the, one of the most dangerous things is when you're gifted or you've been elevated circumstantially or people recognize your gifting and you are, are being brought up. And sometimes that happens at an accelerated level and you're operating in your gifting but not your identity. And, and gifting has an ebb and flow to it. Identity doesn't. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to young, zealous people, and I'm praying all the time, God, give us more young, zealous people for the kingdom. But we have a responsibility, those of us that are a little bit older, not to just thrust them into the limelight because they're gifted and they're zealous. We, yes, we want to give them opportunities to serve, but if that opportunity to serve and all of that activity is outpacing our commitment to helping them know their identity, then watch it for a while because they're going to get sidelined eventually. 
Why? Because God's merciful. He doesn't want you to continue to operate in your gifting and drawing your identity from your activity. So what I've seen him do in my own life and in the lives of others, he'll shut down your activity in order to reacquaint you with your identity. Jesus didn't have to go through any of that because Jesus always obeyed the Father. I'm I'm deeply impressed with the reality that as the Son of God, he had to wait 30 years to do three and a half years of ministry before he was crucified. Some of y'all been waiting like six months, and you're like, come on, Lord, what's going on up there? And if you get still and small and silent before the Lord, you might hear him whisper back, he's like, hey, I can actually take care of the kingdom I'm trying to help you take care of knowing your identity. But we don't like that typically, but I'm going to tell you something. I I, I would love to see in 20 years what will happen with a generation that if we start teaching them now the the crucial uh, essentiality of, of finding their identity before they are neck deep in activity, I want to see what that generation looks like in 20 years because I'm going to tell you, there'll be fruit and power coming off of them in ways that blows away generations before them. So let's move on from this identity being assigned to Jesus. And I want to get to the three diversions because now that Jesus has received his identity from the Father, and I'm not saying that he didn't know he was the Son of God beforehand. So I know some of the way some of y'all think. I see some smoke coming out of your ears because your gears are grinding up. Just relax. I'm not taking away his deity. I'm not saying that, you know, Jesus is so much human that his divinity was compromised. What I'm saying is the hypostatic union, that's what that's called, is a paradox. And you, 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 can't, you can't separate them and you, you're only like two seconds away from heresy if you try to make one real without the other. And so what I'm saying is we're looking at him as the son of man tonight. We're not looking at him in his divinity. We're looking at him in his humanity. Hebrews chapter number 2. Verse number 18, Hebrews chapter number 4, verse number 15, reminds us of the humanity of Jesus and how essential it was that he was fully human so that he might relate to us in our humanity. So when we see him going through this as the Son of Man, as uh, the human being, Jesus Christ, we see him in a way that we can learn from him. If Satan attacked him this way, surely Satan will attack us this way. So, Let's talk about this first diversion because Satan has lost out on the identity battle. He now has to go against Jesus's assignment. Assignment and activity I'm using interchangeably. So here's the first one. I call it the diversion of self-preservation. Self-preservation. So in verse number one and two, we find out that Jesus's kingdom commitments required spiritual sacrifices. What do I mean by that? Look with me in the text. Then, immediately after receiving that affirming, identifying word from the Father, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting and 40 nights, he was hungry. You'd think so. It's a 40-day fast in the wilderness, no human contact, complete isolation, no food, and for those 40 days, he is being assaulted by the enemy of his throne, the very real, the very literal, the very um, uh, committed uh, arch enemy, Satan. This wasn't given to demons. Satan said, I'll be handling this mission. I'll be going after it myself. So what was the mission? He's got to disconnect Jesus. He's got to divert 
Jesus from completing the Father's assignment. Now, I want you to understand something very quickly about spiritual warfare and in particular Satan and his demons. None of them are omnipresent. They're not everywhere. Chances are you and I have likely never been personally attacked by Satan. Why? Because Satan's only doing one thing at a time, and I don't even think we make his radar necessarily. But he has an innumerable host of demons that carry out his work in territories, regions. These are principalities. These are powers. They are very real. They are very evil, and they are very powerful against those who are outside of the covering of God's grace and God's mercy in the blood of Christ. And so there is a strategic assault against you. You have to receive that. If that is just some kind of ethereal thought to you and it's just kind of mystical and it's kind of out there somewhere, you're a prime target for a constant barrage succeeding against you. We have to recognize that demonic, the demonic realm is very engaged against the kingdom of God. And in this particular case, Satan takes it upon himself to come against Jesus Christ. He wants to stop this thing before it ever begins. What's he doing? He's going against the assignment that Jesus has from the Father to establish his kingdom. And some of that's gonna, we're going to see involves the cross. Now, Satan is an observer of humankind. He has been watching us since the garden. He's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, but he is very discerning in the sense he knows how humans move. Demons know how we move, literally. I want you to know this. Demons listen to our prayers. Demons watch our body language. Demons orchestrate circumstances, not all the time 24-7, but the potential is there all the time 24-7. And they know how to work against us in ways that we're not even perceiving or going on. And so what is happening here is that Satan is aware of the assignment. Satan, more than likely, was there the day Jesus was baptized, saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, heard the Father's affirmation, and said to his demonic army, it's on, boys, we've got to move. And they're going to come with full force against the Lord. So what does Satan do? He's attacking Jesus during this 40 days of fasting. We are not given every single temptation. We're given three here. And these three temptations to, against Jesus to divert him from his assignment are three temptations that are being sprung against you and I in this world. They're coming from our culture. They can come from our flesh. And they sometimes come from the enemy himself through the demonic activity in our lives. So let's look at this. The first thing we've seen is that the spiritual sacrifices were required for Jesus to begin his assignment from the Father, he consecrated himself. He isolated himself. That means he got away from everybody and everything for 40 days, was out in the wilderness. He didn't have a sleeping bag. He didn't have a Yeti cooler. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He didn't have a cell signal. He was out in the middle of nowhere, just raw, complete dependence upon the Father with nothing to sustain him physically. He was beating his body into submission. He was preparing himself for what was coming, and that is when the enemy comes up against him. The enemy preys upon Jesus' weakened condition. Look down at verse number three. He, he exploits Jesus' physical weakness, and in doing so, he also attacks Jesus' identity. The Bible says in verse number three that the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become 
loaves of bread. Very quickly here. The first thing Satan wanted to do was to breed doubt on Jesus' identity that he had first gotten, just gotten from the Father. His first tactic is to question, to insert skepticism or doubt, some kind of negative component against the identity that Jesus had just received from the Father. And he just says it this way, if you are, and the, the, the tone is, if you really are the Son of God, then prove it. Then prove it. By what? Command the stones to become loaves of bread. Um, the temptation here, friends, is not just to satisfy his hunger. It is to prove his identity by satisfying his hunger. Can Jesus make the stones into bread? Yes, he absolutely can. And more than that, he can do whatever he wants. He is, has the power to do it, but he doesn't have the permission to do it. So the temptation here is to get Jesus Christ to validate and vindicate himself by using his own power to satisfy his own needs. In essence, it is this self-preservation. Maybe even threaded into this temptation might be this idea. If the father really loved you, if you're really his son, why are you hungry? Why are you out in the wilderness? If you're the king or you're the son of God, why are you out here all by yourself? Why don't you prove to me, Jesus, that you really are the father's son? And why don't you take these stones over here and why don't you make them into bread and why don't you eat them because you're entitled not to go hungry? It's all of that kind of temptation to preserve himself, but in doing so, he would have stepped out from the assignment of the father. The father sent him, led him up into the wilderness for this temptation process. And so there's the temptation. Take care of yourself first. Look out for yourself. Take a little shortcut here. By the way, the devil just keeps offering Jesus shortcuts. And the shortcut to a meal right here is don't wait on the Father. Don't wait till the permission of, uh, to walk away from the fast. Go ahead and make these stones into bread. Now listen, if you've never done a prolonged fast, everything looks like it'll taste good. I mean, you walk by a saltine cracker and it has the appeal of a filet mignon. I mean, you are just ready to eat something. And Jesus was 40 days into it and the Bible says he was hungry. And so we're not going to minimize that. Just because he's God doesn't mean his stomach didn't tighten up. The pains didn't come. The headaches from a prolonged fast. They, they, all of that stuff was hitting his physical body. And all he would have to do is eat a little something. I mean, he's gone 40 days, right? What, what more does he have to prove? And I'll show this devil, I'll show him that I am the son of God. I'll take care of myself. And in order to do that, he would have to step away from abiding and obedience to the father's assignment for that season. And so Satan exploits that physical weakness, attacks his identity. But look at Jesus' response in verse number four. We see that Jesus strongly resisted Satan by declaring what? His dependence upon the father Jesus answered very simply and he's quoting the Hebrew Bible he says it is written man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God so Jesus refuses this first diversion tactic by declaring something to Satan what is it that physical food was not as important to him as his need to remain fully dependent upon the father that his spiritual longings outpaced his physical longings that was what 
he had embraced during that 40-day fast. And this thing that sustained Jesus during his weakness was what the Father had said. When, it said, when Jesus is quoting there that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God, he wasn't speaking generically or generally. He's saying, my Father said that I am his son and I, he is well pleased in me. That's my bread, Satan. My identity, what has been spoken over me, is what is sustaining me, not this shortcut to, to meet my physical needs. And so he is resting. And don't think for a second that it wasn't a battle. It's a very real temptation, much like you go through in your commitments, in your sacrifices, in your seeking to be the person that God has called you to be and to fulfill the assignments that God has called you to fulfill. We are all susceptible to the weakness, whether it be through fasting or working or doing whatever. We're all susceptible. And the enemy is way more patient than the church. And he will wait, and he'll say, right there, she's at her weakest moment. Boom, let's hit it hard. Let's go after it. Slips in with a temptation for you because you, you get to the point, you know, I can't rely on anybody. I don't know what God's doing. I'm so tired. I'm so weak. I've got to make something happen for me. And that's self-preservation. And man, listen, I'm not pointing the finger at you. This tactic comes against all of us. And what do we do? Listen, it's not glamorous. It's not dun-dun-dun, super Christian. It's none of that. It's a complete dependence upon the Lord in the moment where you're being assaulted in temptation. When you're, when you're feeling like you need to break away, to shortcut, to give up, stop waiting on God, and to move on. Uh, I mean, you get it from guys like me. You get it from other preachers. They tell you, you got to do something for the Lord. And you're thinking, I think I'm waiting on the Lord, but the pastor's telling me i got to do something from the Lord, and maybe that's God's way of speaking to me, and I'll just do something. Listen, um, word from the pastor never outranks a word from God. And you, but here's the difference. You can only be certain that you have a word from the Lord if you're certain of who you are in the Lord. Otherwise, everybody can knock you off of your mark because you're not sure of who you are. But when you know who you are, when all of the different opinions and all of the different input and all of the different accusations and even the temptations come against you, you're able to say, I know I'm a daughter of God. I know I'm a son of God. I know who I am. I know what I once was. I know I'm not yet what I'm going to be, but I know who I am right now. And that temptation or this inward temptation does not fit who I am. I will wait in dependence upon the Lord. You know what's amazing? Most temptations... If you can go that hour where it's at its strongest, you, you can cruise through the rest of it, most of it, not all temptations. But what, the amazing thing is, is we give up in the pressure of a second. We, we just give in because we don't think we can wait any longer, and we give ourselves to a self-preserving release or a course of action, and, and, and the enemy wins. So Jesus is saying to the enemy, I know who I am. You want me to feed myself with bread, but I'm still feasting on my identity that was given to me. I'm living by every word that came from my father's mouth about who I am. So let's go down a little bit further into the second diversion. The first one was um, self-preservation. The second one is a little different. It's self-assertion. It's attached to the one I just said, but it's slightly different because the devil knows he lost round one. So he's like, okay, let's just go to round two. I got something else I'm going to throw at this one who thinks he's the son of God. 
And so what are we talking about? The diversion of self-assertion. So look at the setting for this particular diversion. I think this is noteworthy. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I'm going to give you something right here. This is not a vision. This is not a dream-like event. This is real. This is actual because what the devil is about to attempt, uh, attempt Jesus to do has no meaning if this is only a vision. It is actual. You say, well, Jeff, how does that work? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible says that in this process of being tempted, that the devil led Jesus up to a physical pinnacle on the temple, probably around the southeast corner of, of an area where it was very high, about 300 feet above the Kidron Valley. And he takes Jesus up there and he gives, them, he gives him this, this elevated view, this exalted position, this isolating height away from people and he starts immediately to deliver this tactic of tempting Jesus to be self-assertive and therefore independent of the will of the Father. What does it look like? Well, verse number six. And again, he goes after his identity first to see if he can just kind of move Jesus off of his identity. But coupled with that is this temptation of presumption. The younger you are, the more you need to listen to this point. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Remember, 300 feet above. For it is written... Here, the devil gives a Bible study right here. He will command his angels concerning you, Jesus. And Jesus, don't forget that it says in the Bible, on their hands, the angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So now, because Jesus has responded to the enemy with the defense of the word of God, Satan says, well, how about I take some twisted scripture and I use that for my next temptation. So Satan uses the Bible. By the way, Satan and his demons have much more theology than any of us do. They don't give themselves to it, but they know it. They know the verses. They know the scripture. They've been in the presence of the author before. The difference between them and you and me is that they will not yield to the one who wrote it. And they do not honor the truth of the word of God, but they know it. They, they, they have nothing else to do. You think that they've been around for thousands and thousands of years and they're not listening to the very book? They're not reading, studying, memorizing the very book that we use as our advance and our weaponry and our defense? Of course they know the word. That's why we have to be so wise about the people that we listen to who stand with a Bible in their hand and presume to speak for God. Because the devil doesn't come at you in red tights, horns, and a pitchfork. It's a medieval caricature of who the devil is. He comes as an angel of light. Why am I yelling? I'm yelling because I'm, I'm passionate about this stuff. So he, he comes to Jesus and wants to give him a little biblical education. But ultimately, he's soliciting Jesus to act in independence from the Father. See, in, in the first testing, he asked Jesus to provide for himself in difficult extremes. In this testing, he's saying, set up the difficult extremes for yourself to see if the Father will provide for you. So it's, it's the other side of the coin. Make the bread into, uh, the rocks into, uh, into bread. Feed yourself in these terrible situations. Jesus shot blocks that, he wins that battle. The second temptation is, okay, then create some impossible circumstances to presumably force the Father to come and rescue you. It's what we call self-assertion. 
it's, listen, we, we don't approach it like this, and we, we want to give ourselves a free pass. I would never do anything like that. Who in the world's going to set up God to come to the rescue if things don't work out? How about, just hear me on this, how about the single person that's tired of being single? And they find that Christian person in the church. That Christian person says they're saved, and they're a little sketchy, but that's okay. They go to church, and they're good-looking, and, you know, I'm sure as a Christian, if I just keep dating them, they're going to get consecrated, and we'll serve Jesus forever. Father, I'm going to ask her to marry me, or Father, I'm going to say yes to the engagement, and if it doesn't work out, I'm sure you'll fix it. A little too raw for you? Or, or here, since I got on y'all, let's get on guys like me. How about the, the, the guy in ministry? Or the girl in ministry. And all of the sudden, you know, they're just saying, I, I just feel like I'm squandering my gifts in the current situation I'm in. I've got so much more to offer the Lord. And where I'm at right now doesn't currently provide a forum for me to really express what I feel about the Lord. And I just, you know, I'm going to start seeing if there's something else out there. And they assume when a larger scope of ministry invites them to consider it, they say, it's got to be the will of the Lord. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that fat paycheck. And otherwise, it wouldn't be that media ministry. And otherwise, it wouldn't be, and you can fill in the blank. And, and they just commit to it. And they assume, well, I don't know. I didn't really have peace about it, but I'm sure it was God. And if it wasn't, God will fix it. Listen, that, that kind of reality can play itself out. It's the same way with people looking for a job. We always assume when God brings a job, it's a better paycheck and an easier job. Otherwise, surely it wouldn't be from the Lord if it was difficult and it was a lateral move. But that, that allure. Say, Jeff, what are you talking about? Well, notice what Satan did. He elevated Jesus. He took him higher. It, it pictures the way that he often works in our lives. He, he wants to get us, and so he takes us to an elevated place, and he says, why don't you just make something happen? By the way, hey, listen, God will come to the rescue. And again, he gets you to engage in activity that's not consistent with your identity. That's what's going on here. He is seeking to get Jesus to act independently of the Father's will. So what, is, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus overcomes by refusing to force the hand of the Father. So second answer, a little shorter, Jesus said to him, again, Satan, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So to the second diversion of him asserting himself, Jesus just quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And I love it because Satan tried to twist Scripture to get Jesus, and Jesus just responded with, untwisted scripture he just said this is what my father has said um i'm not sure if i want to go too far with this but in, in in the earthly life of jesus as the son of man he constantly displayed a unending pattern of doing what the father was doing and saying what the father was speaking Jesus said that in John chapter 5, verse number 19. He said, truly I say to you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So why is that important? Because Jesus, while he was on earth, operated in his humanity with an intentional seeking of the father's face waiting on the father and doing only those things that he discerned the father was doing 
That's how we resist temptations like this. Because listen, every school you go to, every coach you ever played for, every church you've ever been in, every job you've ever had is constantly shoving you forward to be more proactive, make something happen because the, the race is to the swift. You know, and the early bird gets the worm. And you know, hustle is the unlisted fruit of the spirit. It's that kind of attitude everywhere. And so it breeds this presumption in Christians that they always need to be doing something. They've got to be moving on to the next thing. They've got to find something bigger and better and hotter and and newer. And so we're constantly chasing mice. And the Lord, when he was on earth, just waited on the Father. And by the way, his assignment was bigger than any of ours. And he just waited. And he just waited. And he just waited. And when the time on the Father's calendar came, his identity and his assignment came into alignment. And Jesus moved forth. And the enemy sees this and he's like, I've got to get him off his game. And so he takes him up and he says, why don't you show everybody? Because there's always a crowd down at the bottom of the temple. I mean, can you imagine how how that would have played out in receiving Jesus as Messiah? Jesus is standing on the pinnacle. Hello, children of Israel! And he just steps off and floats down. That would have been a pretty big splash in starting your public ministry there in Jerusalem. So it would have served the purposes of drawing attention to Jesus as the Messiah, but it would have been a shortcut. Because the Father's plan included a cross. And if the crowd see Jesus floating down from the top of the temple and landing on the ground and turning stones into bread then immediately they're going to flock to him. But that's not the plan of the Father, because the plan of the Father was a kingdom that included sinners from all breeds of people. And so when we look at this, the cross is necessary, and Satan is trying to get Jesus to be acknowledged as king while bypassing the cross. So go down a little further. Y'all still with me? Last diversion. We've seen self-assertion. Um... We've seen self-preservation. And here's the third one. It's the diversion of self-exaltation. This is so foreign to the culture of the kingdom. Self-exaltation is never from God. And our culture is soaked with it. Don't tell anybody. Our churches are soaked with self-exaltation. The American Idol, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram generation of which we are all living has promoted this myth of instant stardom and self-exaltation. Satan was the ultimate selfie master. And we just kind of repeat the spirit of it. Now, I'm not asking you to go on your accounts and delete all of your selfies. That's not, I'm talking about that, that innocent expression, hopefully, of taking a selfie has a sinister ripple effect if you don't keep it guarded. In other words, you start becoming like a narcissist. You just love looking about yourself and posting about yourself. And I am meddling, aren't I? I'm sorry. But um, the, the reality is that the enemy um, 
wants you to think it's all about you. To the extent that when somebody tells you it's not about you, you're offended. You're like, I know it's not about me, but you're not allowed to say that. Well, what does it look like in Jesus's experience here? So we see this consistent tactic down in verse number eight. It's repeated, but this time it's elevated. So again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, this is a supernatural event. I do believe there was a relocation, but obviously there would have to be some supernatural element to it for Jesus from the top of some mountainside to see all of the existing kingdoms of the world, excuse me, the world at that time, and to be able to note the glory of those kingdoms. So the strategy of Satan here is repeated. What is it? It's elevation. So this is his third diversion to redirect Jesus away from the Father's assignment. Now, notice what he's done. In three temptations, he's gone from the stones on the ground to the top of the temple, now to a mountain. He's taking Jesus higher. He wants Jesus to get an exalted view, to soak it all in, to see the possibilities, and to sense what glory might be his. Now, remember with me, all of this stuff is already promised to the Messiah. The Father's already decreed in eternity past that his son, the king, will inherit all of the kingdoms of the world. That hasn't happened yet. That is going to happen right here on a planet near you. And so you need to remember that when we're talking about the kingdom, that Satan is literally offering Jesus. And you say, well, what right does Satan have to do that? Well, remember with me that Adam forfeited the human ownership of the, the dominion of the earth. And Satan took it from him in the garden by tempting him to doubt God. And Satan is called in Ephesians, I believe, 2-2, the prince of the power of the air. That Satan has delegated authority. And he is literally running the cultures that exist throughout all of human history and all of, uh, all of the geography of the world. That he has uh, delegated, he has a permitted level of authority. And so when he's telling Jesus, I'll give you all of these now, I want you to know something. That right now, whether consciously or unconsciously, every single culture outside of the culture of the kingdom is superintended by Satan. A little too radical, a little too harsh, it is radical. And it's real. That as the prince of the power of the air, he is the diabolical puppeteer pulling the strings on every government and every cultural influence, every, um, every enterprise, every industry in the world today. And he wants to counterfeit the purposes of those things that might have been used for God's glory. And he wants to stream them into either humanism where man glorifies himself or into overt Satanism where they are saying there is no king and it's setting up the, 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 the runway for the Antichrist to come. Now, all of this stuff is real. The problem is we don't think about it because you know, you're trying to get to work tomorrow morning, pay your bills and, you know, live your life, try to have a little fun, trying to, you know, we, we're, just doing, we're just doing life. But that's the issue because our identity calls us to something a little more than just doing life. And when we rest in our identity and we become aware of that, and by the way, you're going to be growing in your awareness of your identity all the time in the sense of the more you know him, the more you're going to see who you are in him. And that's a great privilege of being a child of God. But as we come to a, a, an initial place of knowing who we are, and then we recognize that from that identity proceeds activity or our assignment, 
That's when the enemy comes against you. Some of you think you're getting harassed in life because you're out of the will of God. It may very well be because you're in the will of God. That the enemy is so infuriated that you would dare to renounce his kingdoms and enter into the kingdom of God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's furious, and so he's fighting you. So he takes Jesus up in the mountain, and he says, because, by the way, this is Satan's last shot, and he knows it. He almost seems to be getting desperate here. And he's going to tell Jesus in a moment, just fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this stuff. And he ridiculously overplays his hand here. Before moving on, let me just say this. Be really wise and intentional about how you pursue elevation in life. Because it's very common, and I don't think it's unbiblical theology, for, for us to believe that God likes to elevate us. He takes us to new heights, and that is a symbolic, it's a metaphor representing we're, we're drawing closer to him or we're seeing things more greatly from his perspective. He does favor us. He does advance us. He does give us influence. And all of those things can be pictured, if, if we want to, as, as going high. But I, I want you to know something. The devil doesn't mind elevating you. Satan doesn't mind elevating you as long as it elevates you up and away. You see, God wants to elevate you up and unto. Satan says, you want to be elevated? Hey, I'll help you out there. Let me elevate you up, 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 and away. Um, I've, I've just seen this repeated so many times. I've, 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 over the years, you know, almost 22 years of, of local church ministry, People come, hey, I've got this opportunity. I want you to pray for me about it. A, a promotion, a raise, a, a transfer, a person I'm interested in, a, a ministry. I want you to pray for me about it. Pray for me about it. This could be the, the open door that I'm looking for. And a lot of times it's from the Lord, and those are great moments of celebration. But I'm going to tell you, way too many times for me to count, I've prayed for people and they enter into it and six months later that promotion, that elevation has actually taken them away from the Lord. It's actually resulted in them resting and reveling so much in their elevation that they've forgotten what it means to go low and to stay in that position of identity as a humble child of God. Just be careful. I'm not saying be paranoid. I'm just, I mean what I say. Be careful, be wise about seeking elevation and promotion. If you're not rooted in your identity, the worst thing that can happen to you is for you to get elevated. One of the most terrible things that can happen to any of us, but especially young people, is for you to be promoted before you're ready. And so the enemy employs this tactic, and look down in verse number 9. Here's where we see Satan's core value get exposed. So Satan says to Jesus, I mean, he just, it's, he just kind of fumbles this. He's, All of these kingdoms and their glory I'll give you. I just want you to fall down and worship me. So there it is. The thing that he wanted that got him evicted from heaven, he still wants on earth. Wow. You remember why he got evicted, right? He got evicted from heaven as one of the most beautiful of God's angelic beings, a high-ranking angel, but he was so close to the throne, and instead of worshiping God on it, he started wanting it for himself. And God took an omnipotent pinky and 
flicked him and a third of the angels out of heaven. That was it. They were toast. And it's amazing that when he's on earth and he sees the Son of God on earth, his heart hasn't changed. Satan's core value hasn't changed. He still wants to be worshipped. Notice this. If he can get Jesus to worship him, to Satan, it's a fair trade to give up all of the kingdoms of the earth and the glory. He's saying, I would rather have Jesus worship me right now than all of these kingdoms and all of their glory to be mine. I would much rather have him worship me. And he just lays it all out on the line. Son, daughter of God. You've got to know who you're fighting against. You've got to know who's fighting against you. He plays to win. You know, we play to play. He plays to win. He has the audacity to look at Jesus and say, worship me. Worship me and I'll give you everything that you can see. I'll give you Egypt. I'll give you Rome. I'll give you Greece. I'll give you all future empires, Jesus. I'll give you the glorious empire of 20th and 21st century United States of America. I'll give you Jerusalem if you'll just fall down and worship me. And that's the temptation of Jesus when Jesus and his identity knows that he's the Lamb of God. He knows he's got to die. He knows he's got to lay his life down. He knows he's got to fulfill the plan of the Father, which is to provide atonement for every sinner that will believe. He knows the cross is his assignment. And there he is being tempted by Satan, who says, I'll give you all of these nations now, but you got to fall down and worship me. You know, I I look at this and I thought, I, I think to myself, Satan, that's just, it's just foolish. But that's how aggressive and bold he is. And if he's that aggressive and bold with the Lord, do you really think he's not going to come after you hard to detach you from your identity and to distract you or divert you from your assignment? Yeah, he will. Why? Because he hates you because you worship the one that wouldn't worship him. So let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus refuses to be diverted. Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan. He evicts him. He dismisses him. He's had enough. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. It's amazing to me. You remember James 4, 7. I think we'll put this up on the screen. I think it's in the notes. Jesus actually did this as the son of man. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Jesus doesn't just operate in divinity over satan he's not operating as the divine son of god here he is operating as as the human son of man who is 100 dependent on the father to overcome the assault of satan and he wins and then he has the authority from that proven identity to tell satan you gotta go so not only does activity and assignment flow from identity but authority flows from identity And brothers and sisters, I don't have enough time to get into this. I want to tell you, we're coming into a season in the kingdom where the children of God are going to need to know how to operate in the authority that we have in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Because again, the enemy plays to win. He doesn't play to play. And if we're not operating in the authority that we have connected from our identity, then we are going to be easy to overcome. You know, we quote the verse, greater is he that's in us than he's in the world. Well, not if you're not abiding 
If you're not abiding in the Lord, if you're not just living in your identity, if you're not obeying even, then friends, yeah, the one living in you is greater than the one in the world, but because you're operating not in accordance with the one living in you, you're not going to operate in authority. The first part of that verse, by the way, is submit yourself to God. We, we quote the other one, resist the devil. He will flee from you. <laughs> don't even try it if you don't obey the first part of that verse. Submission to the Lord. Otherwise, do you remember the seven, seven sons of Sceva, the book of Acts? Look them up. I don't have time to go into it. They tried to do ministry without authority and without identity. It didn't work out so good for them. Matter of fact, they lost their wardrobe in that fight, and you can figure out what that means a little bit later. Let me give you the last two verses, and we're going to be uh, done. So the diversion fails and clarity is gained. Please don't stumble on that statement. Clarity is gained as Jesus moves now into his assignment. We see a strengthened son. It's one of the most amazing verses in all the New Testament. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I'm like, Matthew, don't just say that and not explain that. What does that mean? The the angels came and ministered. What did they do? It's 40 days of fasting. We're not told what they did, but there's a wealth of mystery in this verse. Jesus is in utter human weariness. He's fasted for 40 consecutive days and nights. He's endured a massive series of temptation. He went toe-to-toe with Satan and came out in complete dependence on the Father. And now, as Satan is dismissed, the temptation season is over. He's about to embark in ministry. And the Father says to his angels, go down there and minister to him in his weariness mind-blowing to me but he's strengthened it just reminds me when I'm weary when I'm broken when the devil has gone hot hard and heavy against me and I am at the end of myself and I'm out of resources God never is you may be at the end of your rope today and you say I just don't think I can do this anymore I'm gonna tell you you can you can do it some more and then some more after that and some more after that why because in your identity you are complete in Jesus you're accepted in the beloved you are the beloved of God you are cared for you are shepherded you are equipped you are resourced in him you don't have to see it for it to be available sometimes he doesn't mind taking you to the 11th hour when this is the 11th hour from Jesus that's when the angels came they came when Jesus was at his physical weakest and that's when the father says now so I'm just going to tell some of you that have been wrestling with the question of whether or not it's worth it, that's the devil trying to de- de- divert you from your assignment. Of course you're going to persevere. Some of you may have been praying. I'm feeling this very strong. This was not in my notes. Some of you have just been not even praying. You've been talking to yourself more than you've been talking to God about it. So I don't think I can do this anymore. You know, I'm, I'm underappreciated or I'm not being helped. I don't think I'll ever get the breakthrough that I need. I need help here. I need help here. How am I going to be this person or do this thing for the Lord? Am I, I, am I ever going to find that mate? And, and, you know, just all of these questions. And I just want to tell you, God doesn't have to parade in front of you a million ways to meet your need. He just has to meet your need. And he will meet it in his timing if you'll abide. And you won't be diverted from your assignment and so we see the strengthened son worship team y'all come on up and we see a strengthened certainty notice in verse 17 from that time 
Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had been offered all of the kingdoms of the world. He resisted the diversion tactics from Satan. And then Jesus immediately begins his public ministry by calling all people of his generation to change their thinking, repent, metanoia, change the way you think, because the kingdom of heaven is here. That kingdom is the context for Jesus' mission in coming to planet Earth. He told Pilate, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came to the earth. What? To be a king. So Jesus has proven his identity as the Son of God, and he now is able to step fully, confidently into his assignment as the king over the cosmos appointed by the Father.